1 Samuel uh, chapter 27, and we'll begin reading at verse uh, number 1. And David said in his heart, the literal translation there is David said to his heart, he's speaking to himself, David said to his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. And David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelled in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came back to Achish. And Achish would say to him, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah. Or against the southern area of the Jeremalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Now, it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Well, this is one of the most difficult chapters in all of 1 Samuel. It's difficult because there are some things that are happening here that the author, both the divine author as well as the human author, is completely silent about. That, that is, the author isn't giving us any indication as to whether or not the actions of David here in 1 Samuel 27 are justifiable or whether or not they are completely wrong. 
This is the man after God's own heart, the one whom God had chosen to be king over his people. And the behavior that David is exhibiting here in 1 Samuel 27 is conflicting, to say the least. I think passages like this are extremely important to understanding what true biblical Christianity is. For the Bible reveals to us the real people, the real people. This is not romanticism. This is not fantasy. This is the real people whom God has chosen to enter into relationship with. And these people, whom we often refer to as heroes, they were people filled with weaknesses as well as strengths, failures as well as successes, sins as well as righteousness. With the exception of Jesus Christ, these that we deem as heroes in the Bible, and we're studying many of them right now on Sunday mornings as we're walking through Hebrews chapter 11, Moses and Abraham and and Jacob. We're going to look at Rahab this Sunday. All these that we're studying, these these men and women that you and I look at in the Bible like David, and we, we put them on pedestals. And we see them as heroes, and we name our children after them. In all reality, they were scoundrels. They were criminals, breakers of God's law. They were sinners at the very core of who they were. Richard Phillipson, commenting on this truth about the Bible, says that this shows the Bible's honesty. No other religious book dares to display the human weakness and sins of its heroes the way the Bible does. Which to me shows me rather the more assuredly the authenticity of the Bible. Because if these things weren't true, it would been very easy for whoever made up all of these writings to leave chapters like 1 Samuel 27 completely out of the picture. Let's just talk about David when he defeated Goliath. David when he defeated Saul. David when he became king. Why talk about this? Why move forward and bring up Bathsheba if if this stuff is not true? Which leads to another question. Why, Why is the Bible so transparent about the sins and failures of the followers of God. I mean, we we go all the way back to the father of Israel, right? Abraham. He was a sinful man. A sinful man. A deceiver. Jacob was a deceiver. David, as we read here in various passages, was a deceiver. You're a deceiver. I'm a deceiver. Why is the Bible so transparent about these things? I, I, I wrote down just a couple of reasons. You'll not find these in your notes, just some thoughts on reflection of this. I wrote down, number one, that the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to trust God as the hero of life, not man. It's important that we see these weaknesses and failures. Because God is the one in whom we are to trust. Not David, not Abraham, not Moses, not you, not me. Jesus Christ is the hero. And so every time we look at these men whom God has used and we see their failures and their successes, the strengths along with their weaknesses, we are reminded that the hero of our life is Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the complete 
I think this also shows us that they, these heroes of the Bible, were sinners like we are. And that we are sinners like they were. I've titled tonight's message here in 1 Samuel 27, A Nature Like Ours. Because David had a nature like ours. We have a nature like his. There's two passages in the in the New Testament that speaks to this very specifically, one of them you'll find in Acts chapter 14 and verse 15, Paul and Barnabas had come into the, the town of Lystra, I believe it was, and while they were there, the people were falling down and worshiping them as if they were gods. And, and Paul and Barnabas responded to them like this in Acts 14, men, why are you doing these things? Why are you worshiping us and paying homage to us as if we are God. We, we also are men with the same nature as you. James mentioned this in relation to Elijah when he was talking about how God used Elijah so much to, to, to pray down this rain during a drought in Israel. James 5.17, James said that Elijah was a man with a nature like Hours, yet God still used him to do these things. But he was just a man. He was just a man like us, like you, like me. It's important that as we go through these stories in the Bible, especially as we continue through 1 Samuel, we're seeing all of these wonderful accomplishments that David is achieving on behalf of God's plan and purpose for his life, it is important that the curtain get pulled back from time to time so that we can see the reality that David has a nature just like us, that we have a nature just like him. And so I've written down a couple of things to help bring this to light here in chapter 27. The the first point, number one, is we see him stressed and anxious. Do you ever get stressed and anxious? I think all of us do, to some degree, experience this on a regular and even familiar basis. Stressed and anxious, we find David, David, the appointed king of Israel, the one whom God has chosen by his own heart. We find him here stressed and anxious. Look at verse 1, and David said in his heart, he said to his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should have speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to see me any more in any part of Israel so I will escape out of his hand. Now if you're keeping up with us as we are coming out of chapter 26 here through our study in 1 Samuel and we see the deliverance that God gave him even again in 1 Samuel chapter 26 from the hand of Saul, then you will notice that this is a pretty quick change of mood for David. God has just delivered him at the end of chapter 26 in, in, a, in an amazing fashion. But now as soon as we open up chapter 27, we find out that David has convinced himself, he's convinced himself that the hand of Saul is about to prevail in taking his life. He has gone quickly, and I mean quickly, from experiencing victory to feeling defeated. I think the quickness of this episode is one that is so striking to me. 
I mean, it doesn't take you very many verses back in chapter 26 to discover how that God had spared it. And even the agreement that David and Saul had come to, Saul even putting his stamp of approval that God had indeed blessed David and that David was going to prevail. And now we open up 27.1 and David is saying, look, let's just go ahead and admit it. Saul's going to eventually take me out. He's going to get me. He's going to track me down. He's going to eventually find me. And all this running around that I'm doing, let's just go ahead and acknowledge the obvious here. I am going to die by the hand of Saul. These type of episodes can sneak up quickly and unexpectedly in our lives, especially those of us who suffer from extreme cases of anxiety, feelings of Doubt and hopelessness and anguish can rear their ugly head before we even recognize that it's actually happening. As a pastor, I can go from a really big high on Sunday to honestly wondering what else I could do with my life on Monday. So it is even in our everyday relationships and lives. We can have these moments where we're feeling really good in our parenting, right? Man, I've got this thing. My kids are in order. Yes, sir. Yes, man. Look at them. This is, everything's gone good. And the next day we're ready to take off their heads. The question that inevitably happens when we find these moments of defeat is we begin asking ourselves, why is this happening? Why do I feel so defeated? Why do I feel so much anguish? Why why is this happening to me? And that's the question in relation to David, isn't it? Because after all God has provided for him in terms of safety from Saul, why has he now all of a sudden concluded that he's going to perish? Now, the question of why stress and anxiety overcomes us so quickly is not easily answered one way. And I have learned that this year. But there are some things surrounding David's life that, that I see here, present circumstances that do lead us to at least discern a little bit more clearly why and how this may have happened to him, why we find him here in verse 1 so stressed and anxious. And, and, and again, you'll not find these in your notes, but I just wrote them down here as, in mine as I'm studying this. And the very first thing I write down here that's obvious and apparent is this, David is tired. He's just flat out tired. Listen to what he's saying here in verse 1. Saul will despair of me. That is, if I do this, Saul is going to get tired of chasing me, and he's not going to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. In fact, David seems to be indicating, that's exactly what I want. I'm tired. I'm tired of playing this cat and mouse game with Saul. So if I make this decision, if I just quit right now and move over here with the Philistines, this whole thing will be over. I'll get relief because I am, frankly, tired. I'm tired. Remember, David is literally running for his life. Saul has made it. His life's purpose to kill David. And he's relentless in doing so. Imagine that for a moment. Every day, every morning when the sun comes up, Saul is thinking about how he can take out David. And David is having to live with that on the other end. That as the sun rises today, there is an enemy in this land who wants to take me out any way possible. Who knows how many days David has not been able to have a good night's sleep 
during these years of running and hiding from Saul. But it's not just him he's thinking about. Now he's thinking about his family as well as his men. You read on in chapter 27, we see that a part of this whole decision for David was the fact that his men and their families, he, he feels responsible for them. So it's not just him like he did once running into Gath and hiding. No, I've got I've to take all these people I'm responsible for. There's a burden that's been placed on him that's, that's quite honestly heavy. Past 10 chapters since the moment as a young shepherd boy when he killed Goliath. Think about this. For the last 10 chapters of our study, David has lived a high blood pressure life. And while it's been very intriguing for you and I to study, in real life, to a real person like David, living a high blood pressure life like he is, after a while it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you physically, it takes a toll on you mentally, it takes a toll on you spiritually. How did David get here so quickly? The same way that I get there. The same way that you get there. He's tired. He's exhausted. He wants relief. I, I wrote this down too here. David seems to be disappointed in God. How did, how did he get here? Well, he's tired, but, but he also seems to be a little disappointed in God. Did you notice the phrase there in verse 1? He said, there is nothing better for me. He's talking about here in the land of Israel. There's nothing better here in Israel for me. I need to go to Philistia, the land of the Philistines, because there's nothing better for me here, I need to leave, I need to resign, I need to move, I need to go, because there's nothing better for me here. It's going to be better there. We look at this and we ask ourselves, what in the world is David thinking? Has he forgotten that he is the promised king of Israel? I mean, this whole taking the throne is not dependent upon David. If God said it's going to happen, friends, it's going to happen. But David's not thinking clearly. And that's what happens when exhaustion and stress and anxiety appears in our lives. It greatly affects our ability to think the way that we ought to think, to think clearly. Because David seems to have forgotten the promise that God made to him. He feels like he's never going to get relief from Saul, so he's concluded that there's no reason to stay in Israel, that it would be far better for him to cross the boundary and go over to stay in the land of the Philistines. He's not even thinking. He's not thinking about the fact that God said, you're going to be king. You're going to be king. And by the way, when you get to this low point in your life, it's important that others are speaking into your life. But even at that, sometimes you're just not even listening to what they're saying. How many people have we seen come alongside of David in this moment? From, from Jonathan to Abigail to, to his men, they're all saying, listen, you can trust God. God is going to deliver you from Saul. You're going to get through this. You are going to be king. Saul himself has acknowledged this. But David... David's not thinking about that. And maybe it's because 
This whole lesson that he's having to learn, this whole journey that he's on, God has taken him on a route that he didn't expect. It's put him in a place that he's just, he's just longing for this to happen. And why, why doesn't God do it any differently? Why doesn't God make it a little bit easier? Why, why does my path to the throne consist of me living restlessly for 16 months trying to figure out whether or not I'm actually going to survive. You know, Elijah had a similar episode like this. You studied in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 after experiencing a, a great victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah finds himself running from Jezebel because of her desire to kill him. She wasn't going to be happy unless she found Elijah's head on a platter. And so he's exhausted, stressed, anxious, and disappointed in how God is handling this whole situation in his life, wondering if he's ever going to end. And it comes off the heels of great victory. That's the interesting thing about how these emotions work in our lives, that they often come on the heels of great victory. We can have something really good happening, and the very next moment we feel like it's all falling apart. And so it was with David, so it was with Elijah. He had just defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and the next scene we find him sitting under a tree. And you know what he's saying under the tree? There's nothing left for me here. God, please, just go ahead and take my life now. I can't do this anymore. David's tired. David seems to be disappointed in how God is handling all of this. But, but then I wrote this down. David is saying the wrong things to himself. You're talking about how did he get here? Why is he feeling stressed and anxious? Because he's saying the wrong things to himself. Look at what he says. He says to his heart. He's not saying this to anybody else. He's saying this to himself. I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. I'm going to die one day. And I know it's going to be by the hand of Saul. I know it. I just know it. People who talk to themselves are often seen as peculiar people. But let me tell you, it's important that you talk to yourself. And it's important that you talk to yourself every single day of your life. But we must be sure that we are saying to ourselves the right things. That we are preaching the right message to our hearts. Because as we see here with David, far too often we feed our souls. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. You know you do this. Because I do this. Far too often, I feed my soul false propaganda, junk, about God, about my life, about my circumstances. That's exactly what David is doing here. Now, we have seen in David's life, especially in the Psalms, that sometimes David talked to himself the right way, the way that we're supposed to talk to ourselves. Because our emotions, our heart, our soul, it's a very deceptive thing. That's why I'm thankful for those passages in the New Testament that tells us that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Because there's often times that we're talking to ourselves, saying things about ourselves, telling ourselves things that are not true. 
that are simply not true. And even in those moments, I'm thankful that when we are faithless, He is faithful. When we're sending the wrong message to ourselves, God's message can overcome that because we're all guilty of this. We talk to ourselves about things that that are just not true in our life. David is doing that. And sometimes David got it right. In Psalms 42.11, he says to himself, he's talking to himself, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Now listen, let's not, let's not look peculiar at David. We, we, we talk to ourselves. Jonathan, why do you feel this way? But, but, but David in Psalm 42 responds the right way. After saying to himself, why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted within me? He says, soul, hope in God. Hope in God. Don't trust yourself, David. Don't get out of sorts. No, hope in God, David. Praise God, David, for he is the help that you need. Sometimes David got it right. Sometimes you get it right. Sometimes I get it right. But then we have moments like this. Episodes that we see unfolding in 1 Samuel 27. It was not one of those right times for David. He's talking to himself, but what he was saying to himself was wrong. It wasn't true. It wasn't true about God. It wasn't true about himself. It certainly wasn't true about his present or future circumstances. He felt that way. But feelings are deceptive. And just because we may feel a certain way doesn't mean that it's actually true. David feels like his life is going to be taken any moment by the hand of Saul, but that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But he's stressed. He's tired. He's really tired. And now he's anxious. And he's saying to himself the things that are just not true. And here's the thing about all of this, and I'm going to move on quickly. When we are stressed and anxious, and look, I am preaching to Jonathan tonight. Talk about talking to yourself. I'm preaching this whole message to me as if I'm the only one here this evening. Because I need to listen to this as much as I'm telling you this. The the big thing here is that when you and I are stressed and anxious, when I'm stressed and anxious, that is not the best time to be making major decisions. Someone commenting on this passage said, I wonder if this was a Monday when David is saying these things. You know, Mondays are probably not good days for you and I to make major decisions. It's, It's probably not a good idea to make a major decision on a rainy day. I'm just full transparency. I have to say to myself regularly, at least three of the four Wednesday nights, this is, I'm no exaggeration. I'm being quite honest with you. I've already thought it tonight, to be honest with you. On a regular basis, Wednesday night, driving home from worship service, I have to tell myself, Jonathan, don't resign on the basis of Wednesday night. Because what I feel when I see the empty seats is I feel that there's a large number of people who call Laurel their home that don't care to be here. That after all the energy and effort and prayer and study that I put in to bring this message as equally as I do on Sundays, that people don't care to come. That they don't want it. And it seems here in the last couple of months, these Wednesday night services, they just keep getting lower and lower and lower. And so I find myself even more frequently than I have here recently driving home. And it usually happens down Roberta Road right before I'm getting ready to turn left on George Lyles Parkway. 
which is where a lot of my praying happens, good prayers and bad prayers. And I'm discouraged and I'm defeated because I'm glad you're here, but I'm thinking about a host of people who used to be here. And they're not here. Leaders, not here. They don't, they don't care. And I'm thinking to myself, Jonathan, you cannot resign on the basis of Wednesday night. You can't. You can't do it. But I feel that way a lot. And, and that's what we see happening with David. He's stressed, he's anxious, he's discouraged, he's depressed. Things are not working out the way that he thinks they ought to be working out, the way that he hoped God would build it and structure it and ordain it, the way that he envisioned it would be. It's just not happening. And so David begins to think, there's nothing left for me here in Israel anymore. Maybe I should go over there. Maybe I should give my resume to Achish and see if he needs me over there on Team Philistines. And that's what he decided to do. He said he would take his men, his family, their families. He'd cross over the land of Philistines. And, and, and here's, here's the irony. It, it actually worked. It worked. Because look, look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that when Saul heard that David had went to Gath, that Saul sought him no more. That was it. David wanted relief and he found relief. Apparently. Now, here's the question. Is David right or wrong? Was he right for protecting these families from Saul's murderous plot against them and himself? Or was he wrong? Was he wrong for leaving the land of promise and crossing over into enemy territory? Now, don't answer that yet. Because whatever the verdict, David and his men did find safe haven in the last place on earth you would expect. Goliath's hometown. Gath. Now, whatever you think, whether it's right or wrong, and that's, 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 that's the, what makes this passage so difficult. We have no commentary by the divine author or the human author. There, there's no indication whatsoever about what he's doing, whether it's right or wrong. For now, let it simply be understood that David had a nature like ours. <laughs> he got stressed like I get stressed. He got anxious like I got anxious. Get anxious. He, 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 he made a... A bad decision like I make bad decisions. You see, like us, the man God chose by his own heart, David, he had a nature like ours. He got stressed. He got anxious. And, and then right down number two here, we find him not only stressed and anxious, we find him clever and cunning. We find him clever and cunning, verses 5 through 12. So here's what happens. Let me, let me just try to go to this quickly. David approaches King Achish. After he gets there, and we, we, we discover that he is treated very favorably by them. Da David even refers to himself here as King Achish's servant. Now, what in the world is going on? David's left Israel. He's gone to Goliath's hometown, enemy territory. The Philistines hate him and every Israelite. However he did it, he finds favor in their eyes. The Bible doesn't record how that conversation went down. But the next thing we know, David is referring to himself not as the neighboring king, but as 
their servant. Now, we've already learned in our study through 1 Samuel that David is a very clever individual. Saul even acknowledged that. When the Ziphites came to Saul and said, Saul, we found him again. They did this on two separate occasions. Saul then, in the latest one, chapter 23, Saul said uh, to the Ziphites, now you go do your homework. Make sure that it's David that is there. Let me quote it to you from verse 22 of chapter 23. Saul said to the Ziphites, I am told he's very crafty. I'm told he's very clever. He's a smart guy. So make sure that he's there in the land of Ziph. So, so we've learned this about David, right? In his pattern. And upon further investigation into our text, here in chapter 27, it appears that though David has found safe harbor here in the land of Philistia. He's also trying to get as far away from the Philistines as possible. So in clever fashion, however he does this, he convinces the king that he and his men would be a distraction to King Achish if they stayed in the royal city of Gath. It's almost as if, well, you, you know, King, look, two kings can't stay here. You know, I'm kind of a notorious figure to your people. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the one that killed y'all's hero, you know, several years ago. But it's probably best if you find us a little small country town outside of the royal city so that I'm not a distraction to you or your people. And so he gives this request, and Achish agreed to it, gave David and his men the region called Ziglag. And for 16 months, David lived here in Ziglag. And the rest of the chapter tells us what David did. Look at verse 8. This is where it gets a little hairy. And David and his men, verse 8, went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old. In other words, these have been here since the days of the Canaanites when God told Moses to go in and take everything out and don't leave anybody behind. But Israel's had a hard time listening to that, uh, that command God gave them. So he goes up to these old cities, the ones that God had told Moses to take out a long time ago. And he starts raiding them. He's a raider now. Not a Las Vegas raider, uh, but an Israelite raider to say the least. And he goes on to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Now notice what he did, verse 9. Whenever David attacked one of those lands, he left neither man nor woman alive. Okay, this has gone beyond, beyond what maybe you would even describe as holy war. And presumably, children is implied here. Anything that was breathing was taken out. But then he took the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys, the camels, all the apparel, and returned. And basically what he's doing here is he's giving Achish his portion, the spoils, his portion of the spoils. And he and his men are keeping the rest. And when he would do this, verse 10, Achish would say to him, well, where have you been today, David? But where have you made a raid at today? Because apparently, as the Bible says here, this was his ongoing behavior. And here's what David would say. He would tell Achish something different than what he was actually doing. He said, well, today I went to the southern area of Judah and then the southern area of the Jehermelites or then the southern area of the Kenites. All right? So the first group of people that he's actually raiding were Canaanites. 
enemies of Israel and a group of people who were probably known in this time as being a little hostile to Philistines as well. But he's telling Achish that he's turned his back on Israel. And that all these spoils that he brought back is actually from his own people that he's taken out. Men, women, and children. Judah. Jeremelites. Kenites. Now, whether or not you think what David is doing here in his actions are right and wrong, one thing we can at least acknowledge here is that this is, this is just a flat-out lie on David's part. David wanted Achish to think that he was destroying his own people, Israel, but in reality, he was destroying the enemies of Israel. And to ensure that news never got back to Achish, look how David went about it. Look at verse 11. David would save neither man nor woman alive. He would save nobody because he was afraid that if he saved just one person, they might would bring news to Gath, lest they would inform Achish, saying, here's what David really did. And thus, look at verse 11, thus was his behavior all the time, all 16 months that he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. He was a raider and he was a deceiver. Now, was David right or was he wrong? Is he guilty or is he innocent? After all, it would appear without any commentary from the author that David might have been fighting the Lord's battles. That's what Matthew Henry believes. I like Matthew Henry. He acknowledges these inhabitants of the land from old back in verse number 8 as being those cities that God told Moses to completely destroy in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers when they were taking the land of promise. But Israel had done no good with this job historically. So was David indeed completing the job that God had given Israel long ago to do, even though he was going about it with a lot of deceit and guise and really questionable ethics by not leaving anybody, man, woman, or child alive? You see, that's the difficulty of this text. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't exonerate David, and it doesn't convict David. But here's what we do know. David's lying. And he's gone to great lengths to convince Achish that what he's been doing is in the interest of the Philistines. That David is actually attacking his own people, Israel. And whether or not David was justified in his tax on these Canaanite cities is not clear. But what is clear is that he lived a lie for 16 months. A manipulator, a deceiver, a cunning, howbeit clever individual. Gordon Ketty, an Englishman, noted this in his commentary. Uh, David was brilliant and successful, but he slaughtered whole communities and lied through his teeth to Achish in the process. He had left his principles back in the mountains of Judah and boxed himself into a corner where now deceit and ruthlessness were the staples that kept him alive. But of course, you look at verse 12, the last verse in the chapter, and what do we find out? It worked. It worked. Look at verse 12. So Achish believed David. You know what David's trying to accomplish here? I need the king 
to believe that what I'm actually doing is for him when in reality I'm doing it against him. David is really good at this deceiving thing. It worked. Because here's what the king says in verse 12. It's almost as if he's saying this while he's laughing in that evil, maniacal, villainous laugh. He has made his people utterly abhor him. Look at what he's doing. David's now going to be my servant forever. There's no way he could ever go back to Israel with him taking out as many of the Israelites as he is. But again, was he right or was he wrong? Is he guilty or is he innocent? Shall we exonerate him if we're the jury or shall we convict him? Well, let me give you one more thought and we'll wrap this up. He's stressed and anxious. He is clever and cunning. But then when you open up chapter 28, we find him trapped and uncertain. Trapped and uncertain. Because here's what happens. We open up chapter 28 and we see that David was too good at this lying thing. He's too clever for his own good. All right? Because now he's caught in a trap. Perhaps what happens in chapter 28 and verse 1, he didn't really calculate when he started playing this whole both sides, this, this duplicitous persona. Because notice what happens. The Philistines in verse 1 of chapter 28 have now decided that they're going to go to war. And who are they going to go to war against? Israel. And what does King Achish do? Well, he goes to what he thinks is his secret weapon. David, the pronounced king of Israel, the one that he knows is never going to go back to that land. Look at how much damage he has done to the people. He has presumably turned his back on his own people, so Achish thought. And so he says to David in verse 2, look, you and your men, or verse 1, you and your men are going with me. And we're going to go fight Israel because, David, you're good at this. You're good at this. And since you've already wiped out three of Judah's tribes, won't you just come help me finish the job? And so we're left with this question of what's David going to do? He's trapped. And that's the funny thing. He doesn't even know yet what he's going to do. And we see that with the ambiguity of his answer in verse 2. Look at how he responds. Surely you know what your servant can do. What in the world does that mean, right? David, you know you and your men are going to go with me to wipe out Israel. And it's, it's not a yes, sir. It's not a no, sir. It's, it's just this ambiguous answer that proves his duplicity, by the way. This ambiguous, unclear answer that says, well, you, you know what I can do. You know what I can do. Let, let him take that as he wants. You know what I can do. Why would David say this? Because he don't know what he's going to do. He's trapped. He can't be certain about anything. Because if David refuses, then Achish will know that he's been conned by David. And David would immediately be killed in that moment. So, so, so put, put yourself in this situation now. You've stressed and anxious. You've made a bad decision because of that. Now, now you've lied and you've been deceptive. And now you find yourself trapped thinking I've got to lie to get myself out of this trouble that I've made for myself. 
Because if he goes, he's a dead man. If he refuses, he's a dead man. What's he going to do? I don't know about you, but I despise watching a show on television that ends with to be continued. But that is exactly what happens here. Because right when we see David in this duplicitous situation, we go to verse 3. Look at verse 3. I mean, we're hanging on with a thread, right? What's David going to do? How's this all going to unfold? And so we go to verse 3, and we think we're going to have our answer. And here's what is said. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel lamented for him and buried in Ramah. Now wait a minute. We love Samuel. We're thankful for Samuel, but we're not asking about Samuel right now. Don't interrupt me with funeral stuff right now. What about David? That's what we want to hear about. What about David? Well, there, no, no, there's something the writer wants to address first, and that is a, a predicament with Saul and what we will discover as the witch of Endor. It's as if the writer in true suspense is saying, if you think David has a problem, wait till you see Saul's problem. And he's not going to go back to David's situation for the rest of the chapter. We're not going to get our answer till chapter 29. Which means right now with one kid in the hospital and a vacation come up, you're not going to get your answer until probably about four or five more weeks. (laughs) And so it is with us. We're just going to have to wait. But let me conclude with just a couple of thoughts. This is a godless text. What what I mean by that is there's no mention of God. David's not seeking God. God is not commenting on the situation. So what what do we take away from this? Well, two things. We mentioned this one at the beginning. But let me reiterate it strongly here. That Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. Not David. Not you. Not me. And so when we see these failures and weaknesses and duplicitous actions by the heroes that are founded in the great hall of faith, may we remind ourselves that they're not the heroes. Jesus is the hero. He is the one that is to be worshipped. He is the one that is to be celebrated. He is the one that we fix our eyes on. That's why when pastors fell us and parents fell us and children fell us and friends fell us, when we see their flaws and their weaknesses and, and their struggles, it is not them we are wrapped up in. It is Jesus we are wrapped in because we know that as the hero, he will never disappoint or let us down. There's no weakness nor duplicity in him. He is the perfect king of Israel and he is the Lord of all creation. He's the hero. But if every time you look into the Bible, you're trying to find something in which you can follow, you're going to easily go dim. David just shows us how glorious Jesus is. Because all everyone in the Bible's heroes, every one of us are sinners. We have the same nature. David had all the same weaknesses that we have, and we have all the same weaknesses that he had. We're prone to stress and anxiety. Some of us are acting out at home or at work in clever and cunning ways at this moment. We've all been in places where we're trapped and uncertain 
because of our own wrongdoing. You see, we've been asking the question throughout the message tonight, is he right or is he wrong? Well, here's my answer. You ready? Judge not lest you be judged. Judge not lest you be judged. Because you have the same nature as David. And I have the same nature of day. I have the same weaknesses, the same sin. And instead of acting as jury tonight, perhaps we should see ourselves for what we really are. The defendant. The defendant who sits in the same seat as David in 1 Samuel 27. Who has been given grace in spite of our sinfulness. Because neither David nor you nor I are the heroes. Jesus is the hero and we must live in the glory of God's grace. And until we learn to see God's usefulness in our lives is a term of His grace rather than our merit, then we'll never see the Bible for who Jesus really is. Uh, Ralph Davis said it like this. This is a good quote. The Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. The living God does not have clean material to work with. It's only sinful clay the potter works with. And as long as we wallow in some idea of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible, we'll never tremble before this God, and we'll never delight in Him. We must live our lives getting a grip on grace. On grace. So what do I take away from this? David is not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Now, here's the second thing, and this is very practical. In times of stress and anxiety, preach the right sermons to your heart. Preach the right sermons to your heart. What David kept saying to himself eventually determined his action. You ever find that to be true in your life? There are many times I'm saying things that my wife says, you got to stop saying that. you got to stop saying that. You know why she's telling me to stop saying that? Number one, it's annoying her. But secondly, she knows that if I keep saying it long enough, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. And then I'm going to do it. And that's what we see happening with David. What he kept saying to himself eventually determined his action. And what we tell ourselves does make a difference. This is why it is so very important that we saturate our minds daily with God's Word. That every day, I know that sounds like a preacher answer. Pastor, how can I get through this? Get in the Word. How can I bypass it? Get in the Word. How can I rise from these ashes? Get in the Word. But we must. We must daily saturate ourselves in the Word. We must daily find ourselves in connection with God through prayer. We, we must fill our hearts and minds and soul with music that focuses on the praise and worship of the glory of God. Because what we tell ourselves, what we speak to ourselves, what we sing about will eventually become our actions. Why it's important that we do come together in corporate worship. You've heard me say this before, but I mean it at the lowest points of this past year, and now we're already in another year, but you don't understand what I'm saying. Over the last 12 months, the lowest points of my life, even when I didn't want to be here, even when I didn't want to see you or anybody for that matter, when I came, never once did I leave feeling worse. I always left feeling encouraged and inspired that what I have been telling myself all week was a bunch of rubbish. 
That what I really needed to tell myself is what we sung about together and what we prayed about together and what we read about together and what we preached about together. That's what I need. And that's what I'm telling you tonight. When times in your life you're stressed and anxious and depressed and overwhelmed, make sure you're preaching the right sermons to yourself. Some of us are very concerned about the sermons that we hear preached. That's why we choose the church that we come to. It's why some leave this church. It's why we like to hear certain guys on the radio or internet or whatever the case may be. But how about we get that much concerned about what we're actually preaching to ourselves? It's important. Because not only is God not giving any commentary on David's actions here, but David isn't appealing to God at all about any of his circumstances. All he is saying, thinking, and doing is from him and to him. Perhaps it would have made a difference if David would have appealed to God about his anxiety. If he would have appealed to God about what he was thinking. Lord, is this ever going to end? Or why is this happening to me? Lord, I feel like the best thing for me to do is just leave Israel. There's nothing better for me here. Maybe to go down to this other place. Is that what you want me to do, Lord? Because that's really what I want to do. But he doesn't do that. He preached the wrong sermon to himself. He said the wrong things. Brothers and sisters, when we are tired and burdened and overwhelmed, that is not the time to go our own way. It is not the time to allow our hearts and minds to be our guide. I take you back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on what you're thinking. It doesn't say not to think. It says don't lean on what you're thinking. Don't lean on what you're thinking because what you're thinking may not be true. You're feeding yourself lies. About God, yourself, and your circumstances. What we need to do is trust the Lord and be encouraged that I'm not reading about a bunch of people who had some kind of divine ability to bypass the anxieties of my own life. I'm reading about people outside of Jesus who has my same nature who think like I think, act like I think, act, do what I do, sin the way I sin. That's the glory of God's grace. Because we look at David and we think, man, he really messed up there. But yet God knew it when he chose him. And he still chose him. You see, whatever stressed you out tonight, God knew it before he ever spoke your name. And he still spoke your name. To God be the glory for that kind of gracious God. My time is up, and it will be to be continued. Let's stand together for prayer.